Are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it, but also all the electrolytes, vitamins, protein, fat, and more that will meet one-third of your daily needs? Then let me introduce you to Keto Chow. It's a quick and easy-to-mix shake that is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors, including chocolate, vanilla, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21 meal bag. There's also a sample of all the things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a Keto Chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to JimmyLovesKetoChow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesKetoChow.com Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb USA San Diego event. Visit lowcarbusa.org for more information about the July 26th through the 29th, 2018 Low Carb USA event in San Diego, California. Ah, uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jim. Give me more. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! So, I have lived in a tiny little Keto for Cancer World for just about a decade, and it was the um, it was the January conference in uh, West Palm Beach that introduced me to the broader low carb community, and I'm just thrilled to be here. It's um, you know it's a really important to as Eric Westman had said to cross pollinate. So, uh, so although most of my presentations are strictly about cancer, I tried to generalize this one a little bit more. Uh, troubleshooting high blood glucose levels is really important in, uh, in my world, but um, it's probably a big consideration for a lot of you, too, um, especially if you're not a clinician and you're not really connected to, uh, to a clinic. So let's just get into it. And I want you all to have your magnifying lenses, because I want you to help me troubleshoot, fill in the areas. I'm going to share what I know, but I want you to fill in the areas of uh, information that I don't have. And we can do that in the Q&A, but we can also, Doug, help me out here. If there's a place or a time, like 7 in the morning tomorrow or at the end of the day today, where we could have um, a sit-down, I am more than willing to do a Q&A. Um, so let's get into it. Nothing to see here. Um, physiologically normal levels of blood glucose. That's what we're talking about, even with a ketogenic diet. You're not going to fall out of what's considered to be physiologically normal. But most of what we hear and read about or our doctors are concerned about is uh, fasting blood glucose and what does that look like in terms of your uh, potential for prediabetes or diabetes. Um, so they, you know, very well defined in, in the standard diet world. In a ketogenic diet world, what are those numbers supposed to look like? And that's, a, you know, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today. So although they have standards for high blood glucose, uh, low blood glucose, but the American Diabetes Association sort of goes, mm, I don't know, you know, 70 sounds about right for low blood glucose. And in our world, of course, you know, there's no concern of a number of 70 or 60 or 55, uh, as long as you have, you know, you're in ketosis and you've got those ketones going for you. Um, 
so, you know, just be aware that, uh, you know, if, if you end up hospitalized for whatever reason and they're looking at your blood glucose level, chances are in a hospital setting it's going to be high because of the stress hormones and the injury and inflammation and for whatever reason you're being there. But I asked a couple of emergency room doctors, um, made it a point in preparing. I said, when do you treat? Do you treat at 70? And I go, you know, one guy just shrugged. And the other guy said, no, you know, I don't really treat. Uh, unless they're a diabetic, I'm, I'm not really concerned about their uh, blood glucose levels. I thought that was interesting. So what are the factors that in, influence uh, glucose? So, you know, I'm going to go through these one at a time, but there they are. Normal variation, diet, lifestyle, underlying disease, and then, of course, there's these questionable meter results, uh, and I deal with those a lot, so... Uh, so let's start with normal variation. We don't expect everybody to respond the same. I could take that whole group of people there, fast them overnight, give them the same meal in the morning, you know, test them, test before the meal, give them the same meal, test an hour after the meal, and I'm going to see however many different numbers there. People respond differently, and we have to take that into consideration. What's normal for one person may not be normal for another. So the circadian rhythm of uh, cortisol, I find, is really important as far as the fasting blood uh, glucose level. Cortisol has effects outside of that, um, but there is a circadian rhythm to, um, to cortisol. And then there are other hormones also that are outside of the circadian rhythm, like thyroid hormone and growth hormone come uh, you know, in, in spurts. They, they, are, um, they're, they're not a, uh, they don't have this beautiful wave going on that uh, cortisol does. And the dawn effect is a really, um, it's a really significant um, uh, uh, thing to consider. The dawn effect is that rise in cortisol. If I just go back for a minute to, to this one. It's that rise in cortisol that you're seeing in the early morning hours. And that stimulates the liver to produce glucose. So that's um, a normal effect. But when people are talking dawn effect, uh, you know, if your blood glucose is 200, that's, that's not dawn effect. That's something different. Um, so and women have another whole layer of hormone to deal with. And uh, again, normal and natural, uh, particularly in the luteal phase, that, that week before uh, a menstrual period, uh, there may be a rise in blood glucose and there's some... Uh, some evidence that uh, it's associated with, uh, for some reason, some insulin resistance during that period of time. Um, so, again, kind of a, a normal, natural. But, you know, it's interesting, in Jacob Wilson's presentation yesterday, there was one woman that was being um, looked at. And I know why, because women have these messy hormones, and so you can't generalize in the same kind of way from their results as you can from men. But I really hope that in the future we see a lot more specifics for, uh, for women, so we can help to troubleshoot some of these things that come up with women. Thank you. So I also want to talk about physiological insulin resistance, and whether this is a real thing or not, I don't know. There's a lot of blog information, and I can fill you in on, on who I think has a good, good blogs on this um, afterwards. But um, this is a trend that I see, and I see it so consistently that I do believe it's real. Um, people in the beginning, their fasting blood glucose is at a certain level, and over time it trends, it trends upward, and they get concerned about this. But this is only happening with fat, uh, fasting blood glucose. And what I think is happening here, or one of the things that's happening here, is as your insulin levels drop, um, uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit on that. Okay, what's happening here is as you're keto adapted, your, um, your muscles are getting much better at this fatty acid oxidation thing. It upregulates fatty acid oxidation. And uh, so it's not pulling glucose into uh, muscle tissue. So the insulin is not stimulating those GLUT4 um, insulin receptors that Georgia had talked about yesterday, the insulin-dependent ones that then will bring glucose in. And it's, it could be because it's sparing that glucose for, uh, for use for the brain and for red blood cells or whatever else might need that glucose. It's, it makes sense. 
Uh, and also, if your insulin levels are, or your fasting insulin levels have dropped a lot, your, that glucose that you're making in the morning tends to stay around a little longer. So what I tell people to do is, you know, okay, if you want to test your fasting blood glucose, fine. But also, test a couple hours afterwards and see, you know, what's, particularly if you're not, if you're not eating right away. Um, and see what that level is. I know if I get up in the morning, you know, and I look at my fasting blood glucose, and then I drink my bullet, bulletproof drink, and then a couple hours later I test, I'm always back in the 70s. So it doesn't really matter to me what that fasting blood glucose is. I think it's just, uh, you know, it's something not to be concerned about. Age is huge. And I know Audra's going to talk afterwards, and, and, you know, maybe she'll bring this up or not, but um, children are so metabolically flexible. They get to those, those ideal numbers. They get into the therapeutic zone, which, you know, what we consider to be the therapeutic zone for cancer, uh, which is, you know, a blood glucose of about 55 to 65 and, and very high ketones. Kids are just really amazing at how flexible they are. But each decade brings new challenges, layers on new stuff for people. So young adults are still able to get down pretty low if they're doing a rigorous diet. Um, but older adults, those in the sixth and seventh decades, are not going to see numbers at, at 55 as a rule. It depends on what their history's been, but generally they're not going to see those kinds of numbers, and they need that kind of reassurance. So, of course, the, you know, this is, this is the primary thing that's going to give you uh, uh, high blood glucose is your diet. So just uh, briefly, you've seen graphs like this before. This is a, a standard diet compared to a ketogenic diet, and all I'm showing is the glucose here, but you can just assume that insulin is following the glucose. And I'm also just I'm using, I'm comparing apples to apples here with three meals spaced um, over 12 hours, which I do not believe is ideal. But even at that, look at the ketogenic diet. It's instead of the spikes, you're getting this nice wave. So if I were to take that person on a ketogenic diet, and I was to like, take one of those meals out and move the other two closer together so they were daily intermittent fasting, I would see a much lower even than what we're looking at here. And then on the other hand, if you look at the standard diet and you throw the snacks in that people are used to, Francisca brought that up yesterday, you're going to see many more of those glucose spikes. And you can assume that insulin is spiking as well. So I find it really hard to work with people who aren't keeping records. I don't want to depend on their recall. I want to see something. It's so much easier and more efficient for them to record. It gives them feedback but it also is much easier for anybody that's trying to help them with this. So not only the food record, but I like to see uh, blood glucose and ketones, and I want to know when they did the testing and how, you know, how that timing was relative to um, a meal that they had or didn't have. Was it during fasting? I also want to know how they felt that day, because people, you know, people with cancer... If they've just had a chemotherapy infusion, I'm going to expect to see numbers that are higher, and I can reassure them that that is perfectly normal. So, of course, you know, and Francisca covered that yesterday, there's the hidden carb issue, and then there's protein. Um, so I think it's important to really divide your macros up over the day. That's one of the things I get from looking at people's food records, is I can see... Um, what they're doing in terms of macros. And one of the most common things I see in somebody who's just starting is they'll have a high-protein breakfast with not enough fat. They'll have a salad with some protein, maybe not enough fat there either at lunch. And then they go, oh, my God, I didn't have enough fat. And they cram it all into dinner along with too much protein. So I, I, I will often see uh, somewhere between 30 and 45 grams of protein eaten at an evening meal. And that is going to affect the next day's fasting blood glucose, without a doubt. And, and I also just, if you haven't hit your fat intake by the time you got to dinner, just skip it. It's not going to kill you to, to be, you know, minus that fat for that night. Um, and so just start again over the next day. You will get better. Over time, you, you know, it takes a few weeks. Some people, it takes a few months. But like Jeff Volek said yesterday, people get it dialed in. And it's so exciting for me in working with people to see that point where it is dialed in. 
So, you know, but, uh, meal timing, and uh, it, this is really important. I really think that you need to have at least a minimum of three hours between the last meal and bedtime. I don't think that's as important for children, of course, but um, I do see, you know, do see the importance in adults, and I like it to even be four hours in older adults. Um, too many snacks, even if they're, uh, you know, really good snacks. I'd rather see people have the high cal, uh, the high fat um, snack as part of a meal rather than to stick it in somewhere separate. Um, if you need to do that in the beginning, that's fine, but you'll find over time that you have less dependence on snacks. Uh, and some is- an issue that I see with women. Um, in particular, is that, uh, that they go too long between meals. And, um, and they're trying to follow the same model as men who are very successful in doing this. Men can have like one meal a day, or they can have two meals that are four hours apart. But there are very few of you women whose bodies are going to respond positively to that. Um, and I think a lot of it is the hormones. I'm not sure what else might be going on. But please, if you're not getting the results that you want by doing that, widen the eating window to 8 to 10 hours and then see if it makes any change in your trends. And I believe that like 90% of you will see that it does. And as long as you're, you know, you're getting the low glucose and, and sufficient ketones, that, uh, that degree of intermittent fasting is still going to work for you. So calories come into play. I know the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet for cancer is the best way to go. And I know for weight loss, calorie restriction, of course, is really good. Um, But the ketogenic diet, the way that I do it for cancer, it is not a weight gain diet. As a matter of fact, it may really hamper the efficiency of the diet to have too many calories, stuff too much fat in, try to stuff too much fat in instead of having your body make the transition. Um, There are some tricks I use. If somebody is low weight, um, I I do have to work with them. And there are little tricks that I do that aren't really a part of this presentation. Um, Calorie restriction, good most of the time, but it has to be sustainable. So at some point, although those of you for weight loss, you have a goal. And when you get there, then it's like... And then you just want to maintain. Well, for people with cancer, they, you know, they're just, they may be losing way too much weight. And that is a serious concern in the cancer community. And the doctor, your oncologist, is, is, uh, is not going to be happy at a rapid weight loss because it signals problems. Um, so calorie restriction can also raise blood glucose. So if you're losing more than a pound and a half or two pounds a week in this, you better slow it down reassess what you're doing and what your goals are here. Your goal in my world is to slow cancer. So what do you do when you get to that point where you don't want to lose any more weight? Then then you switch to what I call calorie control. And that is just taking in enough and doing it during the right kind of uh, timing, meal timing, that you can stay where you want to. And one of the... um, I'll get into that in a minute. But, yeah, calorie control. People don't uh, ask me about that one because it's different for everybody, and, I, and, uh, and I'd be happy to talk about it. So uh, fiber, friend or foe, uh, it works both ways with fiber. Fiber, the soluble fiber, uh, can slow the postprandial rise in glucose. But what's important to know is that glucose is still going to get into your body at some point. It's just going to be a slower a kind of a dampened, you're not going to have the spike, so you're not going to spike insulin as well, which is a good thing. But also, be careful about the time. If you're using a supplemental soluble fiber, be careful about the timing around your um, uh, intake of minerals um, because uh, that that gel can absorb minerals and pass them out out of your body, and that's not going to be very helpful for you. that doesn't happen with food sources, so if you're getting your soluble fiber from you know, seeds, that's not going to happen. Um, there's another thing, and Francisca brought this up yesterday too, uh, that's the fructo-oligosaccharides um, and the, the, that whole group uh, has been used in pr- some products. It's still being used as a... Uh, it, has a it, uh, it can sweeten, so it's used as a sweetener in some of these... Uh, low-carb bars, and people do get an insulin. Some people 
uh, seem able to digest these and get an insulin response. So uh, be careful. Look, read the, if you're buying a product like that, read. Um, make sure that that's not in it. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, alcohol. That's a, a lot. It's a quality of life issue for a lot of people. And I have a lot of questions about that. Can I have a glass of wine? I've read that I can. I read that I can't. <clears throat> and I would say, please get through the keto adaptation part. You know, give it up for a few weeks um, and get through the keto adaptation part, and then reintroduce it as a half a glass of wine or, <coughs> or a, um, a single shot of spirits. And, uh, you know, that's the, uh, the dry farms guys here uh, can tell you a lot more about it. Caffeine, that's another quality of life thing. Some people think they have to give it up. I say test it. Bulletproof coffee doesn't seem to have the same impact on raising blood glucose that some people might see with black coffee. The other thing is that the studies show that caffeine can sort of, it can intensify the, um, the effects of caffeine on blood glucose levels. But just test it. Test before you drink it. Test half an hour after. If it's raising your blood glucose, you might want to think of switching to decaf. So lifestyle, of course, most of you know in the low-carb world that lifestyle is going to play a part of this too. But some of the people coming into this through cancer don't understand this right here. That they have this serious disease, they're researching it intensely. You know, I get emails that they've sent me at 3 in the morning. Uh, I know they're in trouble if I get that. I talk to them on the phone, I can hear the tension in their voice, I can hear it from the, the speed of their speech. And uh, I, on my intake, I ask about stressors, and I ask about de-stressors as well. I want to know what works for this person. Personally, I also want to know what their perception of their stress level is um, and make them aware of the impact that stress has on blood glucose. <laughs> I love this. I love this picture. Um, this guy can't be doing himself any good. Uh, this, he's kind of just you know, surrounded with blue light, which is upsetting his circadian rhythm. And whatever he's reading on his phone is obviously spiking his glucose. So... Uh, there are blue blockers you can use, but I also suggest people set curfews and limitations and not bring devices like this into, their, into the bedroom. You'll, you can read all the tweets in the morning. It's another one. How, what's your social environment like? How often are you getting angry at things that are happening around you? And people with cancer have a lot to be angry about. Um, but again, what I, what I suggest is that they... Um, that they respond rather than react. So just that an awareness of what it's doing is sometimes enough to change that. I also recommend um, breath practice. Um, it doesn't have to be spiritual. It can be just pretty basic breath practice. And there's hundreds of videos online, and I have one that's very straightforward that uh, people can bookmark and, uh, and follow. You've got to breathe, so you might as well do it in a way that calms the nervous system and helps to keep those stress hormones at bay. Physical activity. A lot of people um, in the cancer world are told no vigorous exercise. It's going to, you know, you can't get into ketosis or it's going to, you know, whatever. And it's true. You don't want to go here. This is not what you want when you're starting a ketogenic diet. That said, I've worked with people who this is their default and they don't want to give up, you know, one single ounce of muscle mass and they have a hard time, they struggle through the adaptation, but if they stick to it, and usually if they're at this level of training, they are very disciplined people, and they do stick to it, even though they have the high blood glucose and they have the crashes in energy level. Exercise, gentle exercise for the first few weeks during the transition, cycling, walking, especially if you're walking with other people and not power walking. Uh, it, you know, swimming, something that calms you but is still a physical activity. Really good brings stress hormones down. It also gets your blood circulating and gets some of that uh, extra glucose. So it's really especially good after a meal. And then moderate exercise, resistance training. Um, if you can do that, if you're at a point where you can do that, uh, really great. It helps, to, um, it helps with the um, hormones. It helps with muscle mass. Um, and, you know, I think it's just a really healthy thing for the brain as well. So underlying disease is, uh, you know, it's another thing I have to talk to people about. Uh, 
GI issue is very common in cancer, so you get the nausea and the vomiting, but there's probably a lot of you that are suffering from other things like IBS or Crohn's or other things that are affecting GI, and understand that that can at times raise your blood glucose. It's a stressor. Anything that's a stressor is going to affect your blood glucose levels. Now, most people are dialed in on the steroid thing. They understand steroid medications. But what a lot of people don't realize in cancer is that they're putting those in the infusion bags. In, in a lot of cases, not in every case. Uh, or some people will say, you know, oh, no, I can't do the diet right now because I'm taking, you know, X amount of whatever. And, you know, there's a really, there's a fuzzy place in there. And if you're, you know, if you're on a really high dose you know, it's not really, the diet's not going to be a possibility. But if you're on a lower dose or you're being tapered off, I'd say go for it. I've, uh, I, I have personal stories on that that I don't have time to tell. Uh, other medications, some people seem to get a blood glucose rise with thyroid replacement medications and some with antidepressants. And there are other people here better able to answer why that would be. Um, when we think of supplements and botanicals, we think mostly of them like berberine, where it lowers blood glucose. But there's some that actually can raise blood glucose. And I found this very interesting in doing some you know, research here. Yeah, niacin really, but apparently high-dose niacin in people with diabetes can cause an increase in the fasting glucose level of 4 to 5%. That's not really terribly... Hi, but significant enough. Hey guys, you've been hearing me talk about this company called Real Good Foods and the pizzas and enchiladas that they make available at realgoodfoods.com. Well, guess what? They finally got into Walmart. So you can go to Walmart right now and get their two-time servings large pizzas all across Walmart stores in America. And each of these pizzas has only four grams of carbs per serving. They also have an exclusive flavor only at Walmart, bacon and cheese. So check out the store locator at realgoodfoods.com to find a store near you and get your Real Good Foods pizzas from Walmart today. Go support this ketogenic company, Real Good Foods. So, illness, injury, insulin resistance, all of those can contribute to inflammation. And inflammation, the body has its way of dealing with inflammation. And one of, a, one of those ways is, you know, create these steroid hormones that then raise your blood glucose level. And when that happens, then all of this other stuff is happening as well. So because, because I'm about cancer, I've got to put this one slide in. So, um, so this is an in, inflammation pathway for cancer. So this is a normal cell right here, and you see glucose coming in. It's being converted to pyruvate, and the majority of that pyruvate is going into the mitochondria where it belongs, where it's going to be oxidized for energy. A little bit of that is fermented into lactate. No big deal. It either gets kind of dispersed or whatever. It's not, nothing, no big deal. But in cancer... The, if you look, there's that the pyruvate being converted to uh, glucose being converted, same amount of pyruvate. Very little of it's entering that, that mitochondrial oxidation. And most of it is being fermented to lactate. And lactate is, another name is lactic acid. And excessive amounts of lactic acid get pushed out um, into the microenvironment of the cell. And what happens is it decreases the pH of the microenvironment. Another, word, another way to say that is it increases the acidity of the microenvironment, and cancer loves acidic environments. So I'm going to talk a little bit about meter readings. This is, like, uh, this is the easy one, is expired or contaminated strips. Uh, and uh, sometimes those ones that are like sealed up, they, they can go beyond their expiration date. But it's easy for strips that are handled in this kind of way to get contaminated. So just be aware of what you're doing in resealing containers. Now, this is officially the acceptable, as far as I know right now, they're trying to change it to 15%, but this is the acceptable manufacturer's tolerance. So in other words, if you had a blood glucose reading of 85 it could register on, I mean, if your actual measurement was 85, it could register on your meter as anywhere from 68 or to 102, and the ho-hum, you know, the manufacturer would say that's just fine. In reality, I don't see those kinds of swings, but I do see swings. And also, if you take a reading, and it doesn't seem reasonable 
take another reading. And then, you know, if that one seems reasonable, that's the one you go with. Um, by the way, if you haven't visited the Keto Mojo exhibit here, you've got to go there. Um, I ordered one of those meters. It's going, it's, uh, it, it's going to have nowhere near this. It's going to be much like uh, five milligrams per deciliter on either side of the true reading. Yeah, I know. I know. Amazing. Great work that this fellow's doing. So it leads into this one, and I, and I just think it's funny that I had this one in here because low hematocrit, very common in cancer, and uh, it gives you a high reading, but his meter is going to funnel the information about hematocrit uh, along with the information about glucose and come up with a much more reliable um, reading. So whether or not um, you want to bother even reading this paper, I thought some of you might want to read it, but I, instead I think you should just go buy that other meter. So... The first versus the second drop of blood. Um, I had no idea until I started reading this that there was like this big debate over whether you use the first drop of blood or the second drop of blood. But what I did learn was that basically the consensus of this uh, in diabetes education is wash your hands with soap and water and use the first drop of blood. Uh, you know, and that just seems so reasonable to me. Um, and if you can't use, if your hands are dirty and you don't have the option, then what you're supposed to do is like... Um, do the first drop, wipe it off with something clean, and then do a second drop, and that, that reading should be more accurate. So, again, there's, you know, there's advice from diabetes educators on what to do, the proper processes to, for, to work through in order uh, to get accurate readings. Um, but there's no real consensus on a lot of this, and, and a lot of controversy on the last one about whether you do or don't. Um, disinfect. But if your hands are contaminated, apparently if, you're, if you've handled something sugary, which shame on you if you've done that, uh, <laughs> it can show up as a high blood glucose reading. So just be aware of that. And that's like one more reason not to do that. And then I wanted to come to tell you about this one last thing here. Uh, there's, there's this confusion over measurements that are... Um, uh, taken after intravenous vitamin C. Not an issue for probably 99% of you here, but if you have cancer and you're receiving IV vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C, understand that if you're looking at your meter, it might look like that. And I get these panicked texts or emails or even phone calls from people that have not been informed by their team that this can happen. But this is not high blood glucose. The, the molecule of vitamin C is very, very similar in, um, in, the, in the shape as glucose. And the reagent that's used on the testing strip will react to either one. So what you're looking at here is a combination of blood glucose and IVC. And this is actually a great saturation um, for somebody who's just received IV vitamin C. And it takes like a day and a half or so, in my experience, for this to kind of calm down. And then you're going to get the next infusion. So... Um, this type of blood testing is not really reliable. I asked Keto Mojo about it, and he, um, sorry, I don't know his name, so I'm going to call him Keto Mojo. Uh, and he wasn't sure because he hasn't looked at this yet, but I am really interested to see um, what happens when this gets into the hands of people who, who uh, administer IVC. So I hope you understand that it's all connected, that, you, you know, it's not just about diet. Uh, you know, when you're testing... Of course, you've got to be looking at food and timing. If you're, you're, you can expect that your number is going to be higher uh, 45 minutes or an hour after a meal than uh, if you were taking it before the meal. Um, but just understand that it's all, uh, you know, that, that stress hormones and, and how you live your life and what you have to do to survive in the world in terms of your work, uh, all of those things are going to play into um, blood glucose. So my personal story is that this amazing little guy was diagnosed with a brain tumor when, uh, in December of 2004, and we went along with the program, and it didn't, wasn't doing anything to slow his brain tumor. And in the spring of 2007, we were out of acceptable options already, and he was going to be moved to a palliative treatment, and they were kind of washing their hands of us. And that was not acceptable to me as his mother. And, uh, and I was going online, and, and I was looking at something totally different and had to put it aside. And when I came back to it a couple of days later, Science Daily, 
Well, what I was looking at four days before was no longer there, and instead, Thomas Seyfried's um, paper was there that day, and it was um, on a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet in a mouse model of glioma. And I read it, and I was blown away, and I was in touch with him within a couple of hours, and, and my son was on the diet a couple of weeks after that. It took me some time to get prepared. There was 2007, there was very little information outside of the epilepsy world, and I really counted on the people in the epilepsy world. So my son's diet was very rigorous, and, um, and as it would be for a child with epilepsy, and I don't really believe that it had to be that, and Audrey will talk more to that. It didn't have to be that, but that's just what we did. And unfortunately, he did die, uh, a little over four years ago. And at the time, I said, oh, God, if I only knew then what I knew now. And I know that's not enough, because what I'll know 10 years from now is going to be the game changer. There's, I've learned so much just in the last few years. I can't imagine we're not going to learn a ton more. But, you know, these are people's lives we're talking about. This is my son here. But this is going to help somebody else's child or loved one, parent, sibling, whatever. So get out there, be an advocate for this diet, get up to speed on cancer, because cancer affects every one of you, if it's, even if it's not directly, indirectly. Be an advocate, educate and inform people, and that's what I see my role as now. Thank you. said on a podcast, and I can't remember if it was with Dr. Nally or with Jason Fung and Megan Ramos, that as our patients are losing weight and they're burning body fat, and that there are probably pockets of glycogen in with the body fat that will get liberated and cause glucose to go up, even if they're not consuming carbohydrates or protein. And I you know, wondered. that could be in, in, uh, in a different population of people other than what I'm working at here, because, uh, I mean, if somebody is heavy to start with, that's very realistic. But I see that trend in just about everybody um, over time. I see that the fasting blood glucose that might have been in the 70s early on, that it's creeping up. It doesn't happen in everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and like I said, it's, some of it is that layering on over the decades of, you know, what's, what's happened over the decades. Okay, thank you. Okay, I hope I answered your question. Hi, can you re-explain the, um, what you said about women and the window of uh, meals and intermittent fasting for them? Yeah, um, and particularly, I mean, hypothyroid is a huge problem in the community at large, but it's, I see an inordinate amount of it in people who have also been diagnosed with cancer. So I, I believe there's an association there, but I don't know exactly what it might be. Um, but uh, women seem to do better in general. And now younger women might get away with that one meal a day thing, but I don't know. I don't really work with that many younger people, and I kind of doubt that they would either. But um, for especially people who are going through treatment, I think they, they just need to widen that window a little bit. I don't see good results with them having, um, you know, the same, following the same pattern that a, that a guy might do who's doing this for other reasons than cancer with that, you know, that meal at, at uh, noon and a meal at four and then nothing, you know, till the next day. I see, I see too high a blood glucose and too low ketones in women that do that in general. And I'm open to hearing about other people's experiences. I could just have maybe my little window. I'm not seeing that. Um, but I, you know, I, I see it as, I do see it as a pattern. So just give me an example of what you suggest for women, for older women. I think for women, I think going to, you know, eight to ten hours of an eating window is much healthier than a four-hour eating window. Okay. Thank you. Okay. 
Hi, I'm going to follow up on that blood sugar or blood glucose um, question. So I'm a physician. I'm seeing a man right now who has been on the Atkins diet for about, mm, I want to say maybe six or seven months, and he's coming up with a lot of high glucose, you know, readings like, well, I mean, 110, you know, and above. Fasting glucose? Fasting. Okay. So Test other times. Look Look at it two hours after. Mm-hmm. and see if it's coming back down. But the other thing is, people on the Atkins diet uh-huh. may be taking in too much protein That's at the what I was gonna, meal, yeah. Or they may be eating too close to bedtime. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you. I was wondering if you'd seen any success with pancreatic cancer. I have a book coming out in October, and I have a story in there about my cousin Cleve. He was one of the first people that I worked with. Uh, Cleve was in his 70s. I get a call one day, hi, I just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They said six months without treatment, six to nine months, I think is what they said, with treatment. Um, and he, didn't want to, he wanted to do treatment, but he wanted to do the diet because he had seen how powerful it had been for my son. So he didn't want to do any of this, you know, he would have been a perfect, for Eric, he would have been a perfect person because he was just like, all he wanted to do was count his carbs. He'd been on the Atkins diet as a younger person and he was comfortable with it. He was familiar with it. It wasn't going to be a learning curve for him. So he went on an Atkins diet and, uh, and he lived for 20 months. And the thing that killed him was not his disease, but it was a new chemotherapy that he got into. It was like, oh, yes, you, you are a candidate for this. We'll try this chemotherapy. It crashed his numbers, and he never recovered, and he died a month later. So 20 months, yeah. And then other people would, but pancreatic cancer is so important to get them at diagnosis, which is what happened with Cleve. I got it at diagnosis. But too many people, they've run through all the options. Now some family member found the ketogenic diet, and at this point, That person can take in only about a quarter of the calories they need to survive. They're cachexic. You know, there are some things we can do to slow it down, but I don't think we can reverse it. Eric Westman, Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for your work, Miriam. And the rare view of people who've been in ketosis or limiting carbs for years gives you a unique perspective. So like Dr. Bernstein, you've seen people who get blood sugar changes with very small changes, maybe even a toe infection or a toothache or, exactly. or the stress changes. Mm-hmm. And I just want to remind people that um, we used to fly planes without instruments, uh, or, or you might even today in a glider come in for a smooth landing without worrying about the altitude, which is the metaphor for the blood glucose. And also that we're comparing keto lab values to people who are glucose eaters, which is the standard reference range for everything. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, don't worry so darn much. Uh, And um, the other thing that reassures me is that the glucose requiring cells are in the blood. That's where the glucose is. When your glucose is 110, even though the diabetes people will say it's prediabetes, no, you want the glucose in the blood. Rather than, than, like, exiting quickly. Yeah, that's another thing about the physiological insulin resistance that I try to reassure people about is, hey, if you, if it's, you know, you have a high number, take a walk, just 20 minutes, yeah. and come back and test again. And so the, well, the problem down. with using insulin resistance in that phrase is that it gives the connotation that it's something bad. I know. And we don't know. I know. And, and I didn't have really time to talk about that a lot. But yeah, there is a difference between pathological insulin resistance. And actually, I had it in my notes, but I, I was afraid I was running out of time. Um, there's a difference between that and this physiological insulin resistance, which I believe is harmless. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for your work. Um, I've had um, type 1 diabetes for 43 years, and about 15 years ago, I tried something similar to this, but I had to, I had to stop after four months because my blood sugar was crashing so much that I was having like five or six juice boxes a day, and I, I want to know <laughs> what, um, what would be the best thing to eat when my blood sugar goes low. Well, it would be better if you can get your ketones up to cover the the brain needs so that the hypoglycemia is not affecting your brain function. And um, I would suggest working with somebody who's really experienced with that. 
Um, you know, uh, Keith Runyon has a book he wrote with Ellen Davis, and it's on mm-hmm. Amazon, and, and, and Keith Runyon is a type 1 diabetic, as is um, Bernstein. Um, and there's slightly different, kind of slightly different views on that, but I think it's mm-hmm. worth knowing both of those. And, and, uh, and he talks a lot, Keith Runyon talks a lot, I'm more familiar with his work, and he talks a lot about what you're, what you're discussing here. So give it a read, and then okay. if you need to, work with somebody on it. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hello, I'm an internal medicine doctor here in San Diego. And I always notice whenever I refer a patient with cancer over to the oncologist, they'll say, low-sugar low diet. They start cutting their carbs out. They'll say, you know, get away from that. And I'm wondering, in, in your experience, what it's been like if people are in a, in a keto, uh, if they're fasting prior to chemotherapy or if they're in a, in a, keto, or a ketosis, I'm sorry, um, if, if they tolerate chemotherapy better as far as nausea, vomiting, you know, side effects, things like that. Yes, without a doubt. And uh, I think there's, a, there's a, a case series, and if you email me, I'll send it to you. You can look for it. Um, it's a case report, 10, 10 people, uh, short-term fasting. They had all different cancers, all different amounts of fasting that they were doing, all different protocols. I send that to everybody who's going through chemotherapy, and I really push for them to, to do that. And they're afraid to do it because they think they're going to be hungry. But when you're in ketosis and then you get chemotherapy, you're not really very hungry afterwards. So it, it reduces the GI uh, side effects, most definitely. I can attest to that because people have, you know, do it, with, do it with, do it without, and the ones that do it with the fasting are sailing through this a lot better. What we don't have as clear is uh, if it increases the, the sensitivity of cancer to the, uh, to the, to the therapy. Does it, make the, um, does it make cancer cells more sensitive to chemotherapy? It may, but there's really no strong evidence on it yet. So do you think the, it's the fasting state or is it being in a high-fat diet prior? I, would it be better for people to fast prior? Or? People, the interesting thing on this case report was, and I should have, should have said this, thank you for asking that. The interesting thing on the case report is that uh, these were not people who were ketogenic. So they were, they were fasting and, I, you know, God help them. That must have been, a, you know, a lot more work for them to do because they weren't ketogenic. So they would have the, the, the cravings going into it um, that you wouldn't have with ketogenic. Um, but no, I think it's, I think what you're doing, I don't think it's about ketones. I think it's about, you're not, you're not stressing your GI with uh, food at a time where in those, the, the chemotherapy is killing those cells that line the, that from mouth to anus, everything's getting destroyed in there with chemotherapy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was... Another follow-up question about pancreatic cancer. I have a friend that just was diagnosed with it, so that's why I'm trying to find alternative information for him. But I was wondering, have you ever looked at the uh, looked at the Gonzalez protocol? I have, and I am not a believer that that is going to do anything different than a ketogenic diet would. As a matter of fact, in some of the people that I've worked with who are taking 60 or 70 of the Wobazymes a day, if that's how you pronounce it, um, that is, it, it appears that they're actually digesting at least a portion of that as protein. Puts them over the top on protein. Puts that's, them over the top on their glucose levels. That's the pancreatic we, enzymes you're talking about? Yeah, it's the ones that in, the, in that protocol. Yeah. So... If people want to do that protocol, that's their choice. But it's not, I don't believe it's compatible with a ketogenic diet. Right. What about like the uh, detoxing through coffee enemas? I don't believe in that either. I, I think our bodies do a good job with detoxing. I'm sure there's people here that would disagree with that. Um, but, you know, I, I educate to what I believe in and what I have read in, in the literature. And other people do the same. So we all have different opinions on that. But my opinion is that I think you're actually disrupting the, um, the, uh, the healthy gut microbiome by too much of that. Hi, I work with uh, endurance athletes. And so I just wanted to add a little bit um, to your slide on increases in glucose um, due to exercise. And one of the things that I've seen with almost all of my athletes is if they test blood glucose before going out for a nice, easy, steady-state run and then test directly after the run, um, we see a nice increase in blood glucose. And um, it, it actually tends to be higher if they test a couple minutes after the run, five or ten minutes after the run. But if you test it, essentially the second you stop running, you see that it's 
pretty much um, the same as, as pre-run. So, you know, my estimation is that as you're running, your liver is producing the gluconeogenesis. And, you know, as you stop, you get a little overshoot. So it's something very interesting that I've seen. I've, I've also seen um, if the runners start off a little bit too fast early on, their uh, liver will overshoot glucose and then they'll have an insulin response and then they'll kind of crash after a couple of miles another run where they won't have any energy at all so it's something very interesting do you see that um once they're keto adapted uh yes so um the client that i've worked with that's been keto adapted for the longest has only been for about six months so not sure what's going to happen after a year year and a half or whatever but um up to at least six months that's what i've seen so far okay thank you Hi, thank you for uh, your, uh, your presentation and your very heart-rendering personal story. Um, quick question. I, um, I'm no longer in practice. I'm now happily retired. But uh, I know that a lot of families have uh, undergone genetic testing. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I know of a family where the mother died of breast cancer. All the girls in the family get tested, and they carry the, the BRCA gene. Uh, some of them have gone on to have breast cancer and surgery and chemo and everything. Uh, some have not. Is there any experience that you're aware of where a ketogenic diet may affect the epigenetic expression of those genes and perhaps delay or prevent the onset of uh, a cancer in a high-risk family? I don't think there's been a study on that at all, and I don't really want to speculate on it, except that most of those cancers are estrogen positive. Right. So, um, so I think that's part of the prevention, and I would say low carb is part of the prevention too. Um, but you want to lower the potential of stimulating estrogen positive mm-hmm cells that may be in the process of becoming cancerous. Because not, I mean, that's not a, you know, there's a percentage of, of people that don't develop cancer even with that gene. Ah, uh, living la vida loca, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore. The longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage, we're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal, yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused, don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the living la vida low carb show. Hey, the living low carb show. Disc of 